Welcome to Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast that is the bee's knees. And if you haven't subscribed already and shared the show with your friends and family, you're a real flat tire. Here we are at episode three of season two. Hopefully you are loving this season as much as I'm loving making it. I know I missed a week. This time it was not because of my ADHD and poor planning skills. I had to help my parents move their office from one building to another, which was hell to put it mildly and a lot more exhausting than I thought it was going to be. And I just did not have the energy to make any episodes last week. Before we get down to the history, there's one brief announcement. I've decided to switch from Patreon to Substack for subscriptions to support the podcast. Substack just has more functionality for what I want to do with this podcast, and I believe it's going to allow me to create a better community for the subscribers as well. On that note, thank you to Chris, Kelly, and Augustus for becoming paid subscribers on that Substack. For those of you that aren't paid subscribers, it's $5 a month or $50 a year, and it will net you some pretty cool perks. The subscriber-only podcast, which goes out once a month, chances to ask the long-dead figures of American history for advice, and access to exclusive video content. Not to give anything away, but if you are as obsessed with the witch trials as I am, you should definitely subscribe for October. We are going to have some really cool exclusive content this month. And now, on to the history. There have always been women that broke the social norms of Western society, but there's one particular period we all tend to think of, or at least I tend to think of, when we think about women who really embraced the concept of Cindy Lauper's girls just want to have fun, and that's the 1920s. <laughs> Before we can get to the 1920s, as always, we need to spin the dial back a few years and talk about the changes in society that allowed us to reach the flappers of the 1920s. The end of the 19th century sees a slow ebbing away of the Victorian era and the new concepts of womanhood that are a little less strict than the 19th century concept of the cult of domesticity that I've mentioned in a couple of the season one episodes on women's history. The Gibson Girl and the New Woman both began to rise in popularity in the late 1800s. The Gibson Girl was based on the drawings of artist Charles Dana Gibson in the late 19th century and early 20th. The artist believed his drawings were the composite of thousands of American girls, or as he said it in an interview from 1910, I'll tell you how I got what you have called the Gibson Girl. I saw her on the streets. I saw her at the theaters. I saw her in the churches. I saw her everywhere and doing everything. I saw her idling on Fifth Avenue and at work behind the counters of the stores. The nation made the type. What Zangwill calls the melting pot of races has resulted in a certain character. Why should it not also have turned out a certain type of face? There isn't any Gibson girl, but there are many thousands of American girls, and for that, let us all thank God. He then launches into a long diatribe on how the beauty of men and women is all about natural selection, which, well... Now we don't have time to unpack all of that! 
We'll return to the issues of scientific racism in a future episode, certainly, and whether or not this classifies. But the key thing here is that the Gibson girl was just another set of unrealistic ideals for physical attractiveness for women. In Life magazine in 1894, one author wrote that Gibson had a great responsibility on his shoulders because of the thousands of American girls who are trying to live up to the standards of his girls. And it wasn't just the looks that women had to strive to imitate. The author mentions that Gibson girls were beloved because they were healthy and brave and independent and well-bred. She can dance as well as she can run a boys' club, and she knows as much about golf as French and German. She goes to church on Sundays, recites the Ten Commandments, and reads life every Tuesday. The Gibson girl was the picture of every man's ideal girl, apparently. Basically, she's the ultimate cool girl archetype. Cool girl. Men always use that, don't they, as their defining compliment. She's a cool girl. Cool girl is hot. Cool girl is gay. Cool girl is fun. That's not to say that a girl who's dressed as a Gibson girl was likely to slit your throat like Amazing Amy. I'm just saying, the ideal for the Gibson girl was for a type of perfect ideal woman that men of that era would be drawn to, just as the 21st century cool girl is the idealized fiction of that same perfect woman. And then we come to the new girl. As I said earlier, she's conceptualized around the same time as the Gibson girl, but she's an entirely different kind of creature. Rather than being the creation of a man seeking to represent an idealized version of womanhood, the term was coined, as far as we can tell, by an Irish writer named Sarah Grand in 1894 when she wrote The New Aspect of the Woman Question, in which she used it to refer to independent women who were seeking radical social change. The opening line of the article is one of the best things I've ever read. It is amusing as well as interesting to note the pause which the new aspect of the woman question has given the bawling brothers, who have hitherto tried to howl down every attempt on the part of our sex to make the world a pleasanter place to live in. Thank you, Sarah. I am officially using bawling brothers to refer to all whiny misogynists in the future. The new woman was much more political than the Gibson girl. The term would come to be associated with the newest buzzword of the 19-teens, feminism. The new woman, Grant said, has been sitting apart in silent contemplation all these years, thinking and thinking, until at last she solved the problem and proclaimed for herself what was wrong with the home is the woman sphere and prescribed a remedy. I could quote endlessly from the article, but I won't. You can read it for yourself at the link in the substack for today's episode. And so the new woman was born in the early 20th century, and unlike the Gibson girl whose popularity gradually faded out, the new woman's political impact would see women becoming a major force for change in all sorts of areas related to women's rights, from women's suffrage to birth control, both of which are topics I'll save for another episode. There's a lot going on in America at the beginning of the 1920s. The First World War has come to an end, and the men are all coming home from the war. The Harlem Renaissance is kicking off. For the first time in American history, more people are living in the cities than the rural areas, and women have the vote. Well, white women, anyway. And these new cultural ideas of what the role of women should and could be would only grow in popularity as the 1920s roars to life. There's a combination of factors that allows women to begin to have a more independent lifestyle during this period. The first is the vote, women's suffrage. The major fight of the 19th and early 20th century women's rights organizations is won, as I said, for the most part. Second, the war. World War I had given women more freedom in America, especially when it came to work. While women had always worked outside the home, depending on their economic status, the war had put far more women into the workplace, and that maintained to a certain degree even once the war ended. 
By 1929, more than a quarter of all women and more than half of all single women were employed. Greater numbers of working-class women worked outside the home in factories, stores, and offices, and growing numbers of middle-class women attended college and entered professional careers. We also begin to see a new morality at play in the post-war world. Birth control options become more varied, reliable, and easier to get, with methods such as the first rudimentary diaphragm becoming accessible for the first time. There's also a growing public understanding of reproductive and sexual health after World War I, when there had been quite a lot of STDs being spread by our boys overseas. The birth rate fell, the divorce rate increased, rates of sexual activity both before and outside marriage also increase. Ever heard of a petting party before? Because they were pretty popular in the 1920s. Paula Fass, professor of history at the University of California, Berkeley, describes these parties this way. Parties where young people did quite a lot of erotic exploration, kissing, and fondling. Certainly a change from the more prudish associations we have with the Victorian era, though those associations aren't that historically accurate either, but we can talk about that in another episode. All of these things come together to create the perfect situation for the birth of one of the most iconic female aesthetics of the 1920s, the flapper. Flappers are mostly middle-class white women, but they flouted all the rules of polite middle-class society. They dated without chaperones, smoked and drank in public, showed off their legs in short dresses, and danced the Charleston with very little regard for how seeing their ankles might inflame the men around them. Good for them. The Flapper magazine began publishing in 1922. In one June 1922 edition, they published this poem about the new-fashioned girl. Let them sing of the girls of the long, long ago who were shocked if their elbow or stockings did show, but I'll chant of the maidens whose ankles are free to show their half-socks and the shape of their knees. Let them praise those back numbers who turned in their toes and painted and fainted when men would propose, compared to the short-skirted, bob-headed fry who meet all proposals with right to the eye. Let them shed all their tears in a crocodile pour for the simple simp sister who flourished of yore. But I'll cast my vote in the way that I feel for the girl self-reliant, bright, snappy, and real. It's easy to dismiss the flapper women of the 1920s as purely hedonistic, just a pleasure seeker rather than the political feminist new woman we were talking about earlier. And many at the time did, but the truth is much more complicated. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, the women of the 1920s were the epitome of girls just want to have fun, and that song is on my feminine rage playlist for a reason. These new modern women saw personal fulfillment and independence as priorities rather than domestic duties. In 1922, Zelda Fitzgerald, the icon of flapperdom, as she called it, wrote this. The flapper awoke from her lethargy of sub-debism, bobbed her hair, put on her choicest pair of earrings and a great deal of audacity and rouge, and went into the battle. She flirted because it was fun to flirt, and wore a one-piece bathing suit because she had a good figure. She covered her face with powder and paint because she didn't need it, and she refused to be bored chiefly because she wasn't boring. She was conscious that the things she did were the things she had always wanted to do. Basically, the flappers were the 1920s version of this. You gotta fight for your right to Of course, this didn't mean that everyone was pro-flapper. And honestly, most of the rhetoric used to denounce these girls and women in the 1920s should sound pretty familiar to you, since it could come from any number of evangelical pastors today just as easily as it came from the ones in the 1920s. 
For instance, an evangelist known as the Texas Tornado told the New York Times, Girls think more of their eyelashes and nude hosiery than they do of decency. Home life is broken up. Respectful law goes with it. Wholesale iniquity follows. Then, war. I had no idea that my mascara was that powerful. Thank you, Texas Tornado. One college president said, What can we do when the daughters of the so-called best people come out attired scantily in clothing but abundantly in paint, with a bottle of liquor not on the hip but in the handbag, dance as voluptuously as possible, and engage in violent petting parties in the luxurious retreat of a big limousine? And in 1922, Kathleen Norris said that women of her generation looked with honest pity and contempt at the painted lips and the uncorseted, half-clothed little figures of the flappers who someday would want to be sweet and dignified women, but wouldn't know how. So basically, it's every Fox News show's coverage of a Taylor Swift concert, or Ben Shapiro's cringe-inducing commentary on WAP. Balance. So... I asked my wife for a differential diagnosis for the sake of these ladies in case they need to go to the doctor. I mean, like this, this is a problem. I mean, like if, if this is real, like there's water pouring out the front doors of this place and that ain't water guys. I mean, that's, that's what I'm being told. That ain't water. So the medical diagnosis, here, here was her differential. Her differential diagnosis, my wife, the doctor was either these women are suffering from bacterial vaginosis or a yeast infection, or my wife suggested most probably they are suffering from trichomonas. First, Ben, I think you might have meant trichomoniasis. Maybe try practicing the pronunciation of medical terms that you don't understand before saying them on the air. And to my listeners, I'm sorry you had to listen to that. I'm even sorrier that I had to listen to it more than once while editing this episode. But honestly, I'm still laughing at how many times he references my wife, the doctor, in this one clip. And just imagine going on your own radio show and telling on yourself like that. It's amazing, and I will be laughing about it until the day Ben Shapiro dies. Or the day his wife finally divorces him. Either way. But of course, for every flapper, there was a pick-me, I'm-not-like-other-girls-I-like-corsets-and-chaperones type of girl just around the corner. The term that we can use to refer to them would be traditionalists. Traditionalists are exactly what they sound like. Traditional men and women who didn't go in for all that flapper nonsense and modernism. Modernism and traditionalism clashed quite badly in the 1920s, with traditionalists working to pass laws to restrict the new morality of the period, including laws which led to some rather famous photographs of police officers measuring to make sure women's swimsuits were no higher than six inches above the knee. I'd like to see them try that on a beach today. Traditionalists would begin to surge more and more towards a fundamentalist version of religion, which would reject modern science, like that whole evolution thing, which would all come to a head with the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925. So basically, we're living through an exact replica of the Roaring Twenties, and I don't like it one bit. To bring that point a little closer to home, let's let Sinclair Lewis describe the traditionalist as he did in his 1920 book, Main Street. It is an unimaginatively standardizing background, a sluggishness of speech and manners, a rigid ruling of the spirit by the desire to appear respectable. It is contentment, the contentment of the quiet dead who are scornful of the living for their restless walking. It is negation canonized as the one positive virtue. It is the prohibition of happiness. It is slavery, self-sought and self-defended. It is dullness made God, a savorless people gulping tasteless food and sitting afterward Coatless and thoughtless, in rocking chairs, prickly with inane decorations, listening to mechanical music, saying mechanical things about the excellence of Ford automobiles, and viewing themselves as the greatest race in the world. 
Honestly, I just like to know how it is that in 1920, Sinclair Lewis was able to describe every single modern Cracker Barrel I've ever gone to eat at. But basically, he's describing everyone who watches Fox News today in that one paragraph. Of course, while flappers were partying it up in style during the 1920s, it wasn't as if women had reached equality. The 1920s still had a lot of glass ceilings yet to be broken. The increase of working women didn't really represent a challenge to traditional gender roles for the most part. Nearly a third of working women in the 1920s were domestic servants, while the rest were clerical workers, factory workers, store clerks, and other pink-collar professions. Married women were still expected to devote themselves to running the household and raising the children. Employers had a right to fire women after they married or had children. Single women, whether divorced or widowed, also faced many challenges. For instance, male co-signers were required even for unmarried women to take out a credit application. Even women who blazed trails in politics would face barriers due to their gender. Most female office holders worked primarily on what were seen as women's issues, preventing them from acquiring too much power within their own political parties. You weren't very likely to see a woman on the United States House Committee of Armed Services or any masculine jobs like that. So as usual for any social change in America, it was three steps forward, two steps back at every turn. But if you look at a timeline of the feminist movement, you'll often see it broken up into waves. The years of those waves vary slightly depending upon your source, but generally they have one thing in common no matter what. The 1920s is completely left out. The first wave runs from the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 to the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Then for four decades, apparently there was no such thing as a feminist movement if traditional history is to be believed. Because apparently the flappers don't count, which doesn't really make any sense. Maybe their fight wasn't as intellectually stimulating or pleasing as that of women's suffrage, but it was no less of a fight for women's autonomy. The right to live our lives as we see fit, whether that means running for Congress or flashing some knee and ankle on the dance floor. Feminism doesn't always have to look like Alice Paul standing outside the White House. Sometimes it looks like Josephine Baker dancing the Charleston. Come home in the morning light My mother says when you gonna live your life right Oh mother dear, we're not the fortunate Thanks for showing up once more to listen to me bitch about history. Please remember to subscribe to the Bitchy History Substack, and I'll see you back here next week. For real this time. My schedule is finally normalizing a bit. But we'll see how long that lasts.